the context, where we're going in John 4, 22 to 24 this morning, is God describing exactly how he wants to be worshipped. Remember, God has told us in his word that because he is God, because we are his creatures, that if we want to worship him, that we must come to him exactly in the way that he has prescribed. And his word is in its totality shaping for us as if it were a worship guide. How God, and he shows us how some people come to him improperly. They come to the right God, they come the wrong way. Some people come to the wrong God because they don't know the definition of who the true and living God is. And others come with hands that that defile the offering that they're giving. And so God lays down for us in his word exactly how he wants us to worship him. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. That description of what God has told us he wants to be worshipped in the manner that he wants to be worshipped is actually the title, what I call the foundations for biblical worship. And, And as we enter into the book of Revelation, and the way we got to this is in chapter 4, entering the worship around the throne of heaven, the book of Revelation is the the fulfillment of all that the scriptures say about worship. And we see it not talked about, but done. And so the, the way that our worship is properly offered to God is it's on the foundations, uh, upon the moorings, upon the, the doctrine that is to underlie all of the worship that we offer. So to understand this topic uh, and to really understand those foundations of true biblical worship, we need to ponder several concepts. And I'll just bring them up by way of questions. And the first question is this, what kind of worship does God accept? Obviously, God doesn't accept all worship because the whole Bible, all 1,189 chapters, have countless examples of him rejecting worship from different individuals or groups or situations. And he says, nope, that's not acceptable. Nope. In fact, I mean, it's amazing to read some of them, uh, as in Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10. They, they were pre-steeped in the whole thing, and they brought an offering to the Lord the wrong way, and he incinerated them. I mean, on the spot burned them up, just poof. And then he explained that they were drunk and they had the audacity to come in in, in a fleshly way before him. And he just would not. And another man thought he was going to help the Lord out and he thought he'd reach out and steady the Ark of the Covenant and God struck him dead on the spot. Uh, in the New Testament, you know, you say, oh, those are Old Testament. Well, in the New Testament, someone brought a faith promise offering before the whole church, and he said, we are making this massive sacrifice. We sold our vacation home, and we are giving the money to the Lord. And the Lord struck them dead because they were lying. They actually only gave a little part of it, and they kept back some, but they wanted everybody to think that they were really worshiping. You see, God, God is very concerned about how we worship. And what we need to ask ourselves is, what kind of worship does God accept? And that question about worship is vital to us as believers. Only believers can worship God. Only those who are in the spirit, who are born again, can offer acceptable worship. So for us who know him, what worship is acceptable to God? It's vital to us. If our worship is not built on the foundation that God has laid down, then it's not biblical. God only accepts biblical 
worship. Worship that conforms to his word. Worship that is, is good and acceptable and perfect according to his will revealed in his word. So if whatever worship we offer to God is not biblical, then he doesn't accept it. And that, that's very important for us to realize. And if our worship is not biblical, it doesn't please God. He doesn't accept that worship if it's not built on the foundation. So if you think about that, think about what that means to us. Because remember, worship is so much more than music. Music is just one small part of worship. Worship is about a life of sacrificial devotion, adoration, honoring the Lord. It involves glorifying him. It involves praising him. It involves making him great, magnifying him in the world through our lives, through our responses. Uh, in fact, the book of 1 Peter chapter 4 says that how we go through suffering is a form of worship. So that means that anybody that's afflicted with any kind of physical debilitation is offered by God a whole new channel to offer worship to him. So our whole life is worship and can be worship. And it's not just music or instruments or, or being in a worship service. It's a life. But any worship not offered the way God has dictated is unacceptable worship in any of those realms. The the response, if you want to talk about the response to pain and suffering, if, if it's a grudging response, if it's a, it's a, a questioning response, it doesn't magnify him. If it's, if it's words that are offered that are detached from or inaccurate or misrepresenting God, it's not acceptable worship. So it's vital to realize that. That means that worship that's prompted by unsaved people is rejected by God. Remember what Jesus said about the the heathen, the pagan, he said, in vain, uh, vain, vanity, ahavel is the word. It means, it's just like, um, uh, just like breathlessness. In fact, uh, in, in Hawaii, they call uh, non-Hawaiians, the native Hawaiians call us haulis. Do you know why? Because, because we don't have the breath of life in us like, like they do. And so they, they consider us hollow and empty and vain, ahavel. And Jesus said that's how the worship is of people who are not born again. It's just empty. It doesn't communicate to him. So worship prompted by unsaved people is rejected. And any fleshly motivated, self-guided worship offered by an unsurrendered believer is also rejected. In other words, God doesn't just take whatever we give him. But we live in a culture that that's how people are. We live in a less and less prepared culture because we're used to instantaneous everything. I mean, hit the microwave button and, you know, zap it and, and, and text it and send it out. We, we are so instantaneous that we have lost some of the preparation that God has shown over and over again that he desires. You've heard me say this, that... God calculates time a little bit different than we do. God, when he talks about humans and our time, God describes it as, and the evening and the morning were a day. You see, God sees the day starting at the close or the end of one is actually the beginning of the next. It's not 
a third of the way through when it's light that the day begins. It's actually at the close of the previous. And so the, the ultimate preparation for this morning is not 30 seconds walking down the aisle or two minutes sitting in the pew. It actually started last night. And, and the worship that God wants this morning, if it's to be acceptable to him, has to be reflective of us acknowledging who he is, how he's approached, what he desires. I always remember the severity of Christ's judgment on the fleshliness of the Corinthians. It, there, there's something about unsurrendered, self-styled, fleshly promptedness that the Corinthians just display so well for us. They were Christians, but their worship was rejected by God. So much so that he said, some of you people at communion, I am making ill. I'm going to make you in a bed of suffering. In fact, some of you, he says, I'm going to kill. God kills Christians? Yeah, it says that. First Corinthians 11 says that in First John 5, says that in Revelation 2. God will not allow a Christian to operate in a prolonged, a born-again Christian, a genuine saved Christian. He will not allow them to operate in a prolonged way like they're unsaved, denying by their lifestyle the one that saved them. And so he says, I don't want any self-guided, fleshly motivated, unsurrendered believers worshiping because I reject it. So what he wants us to do is surrender, yield, allow him to transform us and to prepare us to come before him. Worship is acceptable to God, and we must think about what, what makes it acceptable to him as we offer our adoration and our honor in fact, God spends so much time in his word describing uh, the offers that come before him. And he talked about them in one passage. He said that we're to have uh, clean hands holding the offering and a pure heart motivating the offering. And, and that idea of, of having something that's offered to us that's clean and pure, I mean, you think about that all the time. Have you ever been somewhere eating and, and your food is brought and there's this hair trailing off out of the food, you know, off over the edge of the plate. I mean, what do you instantly do? Go, oh, I can't wait to see what flavor that hair is, you know? Uh, no, you just you discreetly or some people indiscreetly just say, I've, I'm sorry, you know, could you bring me another portion, preferably not from that part of the pan, you know? Uh, and, and how about if, if you're served a drink, and you, you just can see grease and lipstick and everything all the way around. It's, it's an unwashed, greasy cup. You go, uh, no thanks. You walk in, you're watching food being prepared, and, and the, the raw ingredients are on, on some filthy counter, and, and you just see that it's totally, you know, going to make you ill by all the germs and, and everything. You just say, I don't want it. See, in a real sense, we need to understand that, that worship offered to God, if it has contaminants that he has already clearly told us he doesn't like. I mean, I've never seen someone say, you know, don't put hair in food. It's just understood. God is, doesn't have anything. It's just understood. He declares it. He doesn't want us to, to miss the cue. So, Worship is much like the medium God used to portray sacrifices in the Old Testament. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about what so much of the Old Testament is about? It's about the medium, the, the manner, the method, the, the substances they were used. And all of them surrounded clean 
food. You understand that? The grain, the animals. God, right from the, before the flood, from, from Genesis 6 onward, God is differentiating between clean and unclean animals. And, and they were supposed to only offer to him, in this distinction, what was clean. Because he declared it. He just said, this is what I want and this is what I don't want. It's just like someone that, that you're giving a present to. If you love them, you try and figure out exactly what they want. You don't force upon them something you know in advance offends them or, or is, is something that they are, are not wanting. They're revolted by You don't push that at them if you love them. God said, don't, don't push at me what revolts me. What is, to use an Old Testament word, what is an abomination in my sight. So all those sacrifices from clean types of food or animals, if they were offered uh, by an unclean person, you understand in the Old Testament, there's, there's so, so much there. You could have exactly the right offering and have it in the hands of an unclean person, the Lord said, I reject it. You've got to give me what I asked for, and you've got to bring it to me the way I want it brought to me. And you say, that sounds a little, yeah, it does sound a little. You know what it sounds like? It sounds like he is the awesome God of the universe who sets the rules. And we live in a world where people don't even like any rules. And in, in the purging out of rules, they've forgotten. There's one who most matters and who said, I want you to always do what Paul said, what is pleasing. He said, I always do that which is pleasing in his sight. That's my desire. And how do we know what that is? It's not a mystery. It's in his word. Well, the idea of rejected worship becomes the theme of the last book of the Old Testament. If you know your books of the Bible, the 39th book of the Bible is the book of Malachi. And the entire book of Malachi is God assessing his chosen people of promise, the Jews, and he's looking at them after their captivity of 70 years, after they went back to the land, after they in 515 BC built their new temple, rebuilt the old temple in a new way, and, and he's assessing how they're doing. And you know what he says? He says, you have two problems. Some of you are coming with the right sacrifice, but your heart is so dirty, it's so defiled, it's so arrogant, it's so proud, it's so materialistic, it's so filled with bitterness. He says, that ruined your sacrifice. It's kind of like someone bringing you, you know, your meal and, and they're sneezing and, and, and expectorating all over it and they're deathly ill and you go, oh, that was a good meal, but it's gotten ruined by all that. God says, our lives can ruin the sacrifice we offer him. Sacrifices of praise, sacrifices of adoration, sacrifices of our worship. Our lives can contaminate the offering. So first, Malachi is about people that came with wrong attitudes and, and, and unconfessed, unforgiven, unforsaken sins. But the other thing is sometimes they were offering defiled sacrifices. Uh, they, you know, remember they, they offered these animals. What we would say in modern lingo is that you could only offer to God prime, you know, grade A meat. And, and they were saying, well, as long as we've got to kill it anyway, why don't we get an animal that's on its last leg? 
that always reminds me of a story. When we lived in Oklahoma, we wanted to raise um, a cow, and so my boys, and so one of the ranchers there said, oh man, I'll take you to the, the livestock auction. It's just across the corner of uh, the state corners in Kansas. So it's something my kids have never stopped talking about. And so this cowboy and his hat and boots and everything and his pickup rode him up there and they got out in the arena and they started bringing in these, these beautiful, you know, Barzonas and Black Anguses and all of these, these beautiful cows. And the kids would notice and... Um, all of a sudden, a cow would come and it only have three legs and it would just come in on three legs and one eye would be white, blinded, and its ear would be missing and it would go like this. And they noticed the same guy in the front row always went, you know, he never, the big, big, healthy black Anguses walked in, he just sat there like this. But one of them hopped, you know, dragged in like this. He, he bought every one of them. And my sons got curious and the rancher was watching the black cows, so they decided to follow that guy to see what he was doing with all those crippled, blind, sickly cows. He took every one of them out the back door. Supermarket truck, going right to the meat department because if it's gonna be cut up anyway, what does it matter how many legs it has? And, and that is exactly what was going on in the worship of God in Malachi. He said, you're bringing me your blind cow, you're bringing me your lame cow, you're bringing me your half-dead sick cow when it's supposed to be a sacrifice. It's supposed to be the very best, and it's supposed to be the way that I prescribe. Well, the people that God wanted to worship him were not following his specific requests of what he accepts. So that brings us to a second concept. Not only should we understand what kind of worship God accepts, but we need to understand, secondly, that every time the Bible describes worship, it always has three elements, not just one. And we are so used to focusing on only one piece of the whole that we realize that all three pieces have to be congruent and in agreement with what God says if it's acceptable worship. Biblical worship always has three elements. Now think about everything you know from the Bible about worship. Every time worship is portrayed in the Bible, it always has these three elements. First is the person that's offering the worship. And the Bible talks about the person that is coming to the Lord and their offering. But it describes the person. The person, the, the, the worshiper is one element. And you can't, you can't have worship that is acceptable to God if the worshiper is not coming in an acceptable way. Secondly, is the offering that they're bringing. And God describes completely. I've already talked about it. He wanted the best. He wanted the, the, you know, the, the ones that were flawless, that, that could be inspected and weren't sickly and everything else. He wanted that. He wanted something that was a sacrifice. And that's the second element, the offering that they were bringing. And then thirdly, the one that they're giving the offering to. You, you don't offer worship to a false god. You don't offer worship to a human um, leader or something. All acceptable worship is only directed toward God. And, and it has to be the worship that he accepts. And it has to come from the proper character and the proper consecration. Clean hands, pure heart. The character is the heart. The hands is the consecration of the life. And so those three elements are always all the way through. And those three perspectives are always presented in the Bible. All three elements had to be right. 
Now, here's just a little key. As you're reading through the Bible, do you want to have a great way to, to make Bible reading even more fascinating and more profitable? Notice these elements. All of these pages of the Bible about all these different people making their offerings to the Lord, whether it be the Pharisees and Sadducees, I mean, they're going through their gardens and counting every tenth leaf. And they have this gold platter and they're taking every tenth leaf off every plant and they're walking and parading through the streets all the way to the temple, showing how they are even giving one tenth of every dandelion on their lawn. And the Lord says, that is really a wonderful offering, but the hand that's holding it and the heart attached to that hand is like the rotting corpses of a tomb. So I don't want your platter. It, they were coming to the right God. They were giving him the first fruits. They weren't proper in their hearts. All three pieces have to be correct. The first worship scene in the Bible, by the way, is in Genesis 4. And the two characters are Cain and Abel. And we all know the story. They bring their offering to God. One offering of worship, Abel's, is accepted by God. And the other offering of worship, Cain's, is rejected. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about all three parts are there? We know who the worshipers were, Cain and Abel. We know who the object of their worship was, God. And we know what they brought, because it tells us what they brought. Abel brought of his flock, and Cain brought of his produce. He brought... I don't know what, one of those giant pumpkins you see about Halloween time, or maybe he brought a five-pound tomato. But I don't know what he brought, but I do know this. His offering wasn't accepted, and Abel's was. But the three elements are always there. All three elements have to be right. You have to have the right God as the destination. You have to have the right offering that you're bringing him. And you have to have the right way it's offered, the character and the consecration of the offerer. Well, we know the story. Cain brought the wrong offering. He brought an unbloody produce from his garden. He brought it the wrong way. How did he bring it? He brought it self-styled, unsubmissive to what God asked for. You see, remember Isaiah clarifies this, this problem we all have. He says, all of us are like sheep, we've gone astray, and all of us were born wanting our own way. And when God clearly communicated what his expectations were, Abel did exactly what the Lord asked for. And Abel came with the heart, he came with the offering, and he came to God. And Cain didn't have the heart, wouldn't give the offering, but he came to God. And God says, if I don't have all three, if I don't have you, if I don't have your attention to what you give, and if you don't give it to me, it's unacceptable. It's rejected. All three elements must be right, or the whole process is rejected. That could be a summary of the whole Old Testament. In fact, if you want to just read the Old Testament as a worship study, you would find those elements are just on about every other page of the Old Testament. Each chapter is about whether people lived the right way so they could be worshipers, whether they gave the right things that please God, and whether they even addressed them to the right God. Because remember 
one of the descriptions of Israel in the Old Testament is that they were, they were whoring, W-H-O-R-I-N-G. They were involved in harlotry, not only fornicatious-wise, but religiously, that they were going after other gods, hoping to get blessings from the rain god and blessings from the fertility god and blessings from the whatever god. And they were, they were not being faithful to the one true living God. Well, with that three-part grid in your mind, you could organize much of the scriptures. First of all, there are many passages in the Bible about who the God is we worship. He is holy, he is merciful, he is eternal. This is the doctrine of God. And, and we must know that doctrine and know the exclusive channel that, that, we, that we have to communicate on. You know, we live in a... a pluralistic society and I'm all for everybody having freedom to to worship whatever God they want but if they ask we must clearly say and not flub around and and try and you know cover up like remember Ken Ham showed that little clip of the wonderful godly Christian that they pointed the camera at him two Sundays ago and it was on the screen and they asked the guy if they believed in the God of the Bible that created everything uh, directly from nothing in six days and he went well you know there's a lot of we don't want to kind of be uh, yeah. and and we have to living in a pluralistic society we have to say yes it is fine to have a Mormon president if we ever get one just like a former Muslim president we have now but Mormons don't go to heaven period they worship the wrong God, they have the wrong Jesus Christ, and they have a works-oriented pathway. They are not born-again servants of the living God. And if they ask, you have to say, now, you can go to any church you want, but there's only one way to God. There's only one name. There's only one representation of the infinite God, and it's Jesus Christ. And that's I mean, that's what is the reason that we're going to be excluded soon. You know, I was thinking about that. Uh, I went to Speedway and I poked in my um, credit card and it went, uh -uh. I looked at it, so I turned around and went, uh -uh. it's rejected. So I got on the phone, I said, what are you doing to me, uh, Citibank? And they said, did you just buy all this stuff we saw here in Spain? Are you on vacation in Barcelona? I said, no, I'm not in Barcelona, I'm in Lawton. And they said, lot in Spain? I said, no, 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 no. And they said, then somebody has your card and that's why it won't work at Speedway. And I thought, that's really fun, but what's going to happen when we don't have the little pictures of George Washington anymore and we only have that? Whoever controls the card will control everything. Food, gas, water. And that's what the Bible says we're headed toward. And the people that say what I just said that there's only one name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved, their cards can be turned off because they aren't with the program. They are not following the Antichrist. So be careful what you say because it will come back to you. That's why I'm glad that we're going to be out of here before he starts executing all the people, but it's going to be bad before he starts all that. Uh, so there are passages about doctrine of God we should know. There are passages about what kind of offerings are acceptable to him. Finally, there's much attention to the life of the one who offers to God. How we come, when we come, what preparations are needed, what is a wrong or bad way to come. That's what the whole Bible's about. Let me just give you an example. And in first service, you know, it made people nervous, so I 
I hope you don't get nervous. Did you know there is a huge amount of the Bible that's devoted to how you're supposed to dress when you come before God? Did you know that? I was just one time reading through the Bible. I was studying, um, trying to find as many truths as I could in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. So I decided I would count how many preparation steps there were for a priest on the Day of Atonement. It says he had to come from his home, and when he got to the camp, he had to change his clothes in the camp. But before he changed his clothes, he had to take a bath. And before he took the bath, he had to shave his entire body and wash with this pure temple water. And then he put on layer after layer, and it describes all these layers. And finally, there's something over the top of the layer and something on his head. And then they had to take blood. They had to kill an animal. He's still getting dressed. And they had to take the blood. And they put some here. And they put some on his toe. And they put some on his thumb. And then he had to wash that off. And then they put a little oil on his head. And I thought, we're not even started here. We're on step 27. And I thought, what is all that about? You know what it's about? God says, anybody that comes before me has to be pure, has to be holy, has to be reverent. And there was this big guardrail and said, don't approach the Lord in an irreverent, unholy, immodest, impure way. When they did, things happened. And, and that's why the book of Hebrews says that our God is a consuming fire and that we are supposed to realize that only those who follow after holiness will ever see him and dwell in his presence. Does that mean we're perfect? No. But like last Sunday night at communion, remember communion is probably the highest form of worship that we have because not only are we worshiping God, we're worshiping like they are around the throne. We're, we're singing and praising and rejoicing and rehearsing his redemption of us from sin. Communion is probably the ultimate of all the worship services. And so to prepare for that, last Sunday night I was talking about the fact that there's to look back at the cross, to look up at Christ's return. But Paul says, before we partake, there's the inward look. And what we look for is to see if there's any sin that we've allowed a little place to live in our life. And we're kind of, it's in a closet. And we keep the closet shut, and we stand in front of the closet and say, Lord, clean everything. But you can't clean in the closet. You can have any, you cannot, no. And we aid and abet and nurture and feed and, and put up with and tolerate sin. That's called unconfessed, unforsaken sin. The Lord says, when you do that, you aren't approaching me in the right way. Well, most of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers are about the worship from these three angles, about who it is we worship, who we're supposed to be, and what he wants. Now, Let's fast forward to the most important verse which we're going to in John chapter 4. You wonder when we'd get there. Before we read it, I want to show you what we're looking for in it. Because remember, you learned when you were little in Sunday school the, the, the purpose for the Bible. In fact, I call this the purpose of God's Word in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. This is what Paul tells us. God's Word is inspired. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So it's like no other book in the world. It's divinely breathed out. Then Paul explains that every part of the Bible has four elements. It says all parts of the scripture, Leviticus and Colossians, Exodus and Romans. 
uh, Genesis and the Gospel by John. All books of the Bible are profitable for doctrine, that's what's right, for correction, that's what's wrong, for instruction in righteousness, that's how to stay right, and then he, he adds that little reproof in there for whenever we aren't doing what God wants, how to see that we're wrong. So he instructs us in the purpose of God's word, the doctrine, what God says is right. And then if we're not doing right, his correction or his reproof. And then his instruction in how to continue a life that's right and his, his telling us how we can correct anything that's, that's incorrect in our life. So let me overlay that into what we're going to read. Using 2 Timothy 3, the doctrine about true biblical worship, when we read chapter 4 of John, it's going to tell us what God has taught us in his word is right about the way we worship. So we should want to know the doctrine. What's the right way to worship God? Not anyway, not self-styled, not freewheeling, the right way. And God exactly tells us that. Secondly, reproof. 2 Timothy 3.16 says reproof about true biblical worship is what God has taught us already in his word is the wrong way to worship. Did you know God's already illustrated all the wrong ways to worship? And we should know what they are and we should see them coming. And we should avoid them like you avoid the place that food is defiled and makes you sick. That's the reproof. The correction about true biblical worship, as we read John 4, 24, is what God has taught us in his word is the way to get right. What the Lord told that woman is how the woman at the well that he's talking to, how she could transition from the wrong worship to the right worship. How to get right in your worship. Because all of us are going to be from time to time slipping away from what pleases God and, and the word of God. That's why the more we're in this book and the more we sense the mind of God in every issue, the more we are aware that, oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. That part of my life, as I read your word, I understand that is not fully under your control. It's out of control. I surrender that to you. And that's what the whole concept of correction and an instruction in righteousness is what God has taught in his word as a way to stay right in our worship. So since worship is so important to God, we need to come before him, especially in this text, and say, Lord, I know there's three parts. I know that your word is going to instruct me what is right about me as a worshiper, what you want me to look like if I'm going to worship you. Then you've instructed me what forms of worship are acceptable to you, and then you've told me where that worship is to be directed. So as I read this, you're going to look for three things. You're going to look for, number one, the worshiper. Who can worship God and how they prepare to do so? This is the one who's doing the offering. Then you look for their worship. What worship God desires, what he is seeking, what he accepts, what worship God is pleased by. That's the offering that we give. And then finally, I call it the worshipped. It's God. He's the object of our worship. And God is the receiver of our worship. And there's only one God that we can worship. And we have to worship him as the God revealed in his word, not as the, you know, so we don't offend anybody, but him. And so he's very defined. And there, there are these passages, starting with John 4.22, that frame for us the doctrine of worship. So with that in mind, 
John 4, 22, let's stand. We're finally at that point. Now the message is beginning. I told him in first service, you're going to have something like Ezra. Do you remember when Ezra spoke in Jerusalem? He spoke for seven or eight hours. And it started raining. They didn't have the weather channel and they hadn't checked. And it was an outdoor service. And you know what it says? The people all stood there in the rain and just listened to him explaining the Bible to him hour after hour. I thought about that this week. I was going by a soccer game and I noticed that the stands were filled with people and they all had ponchos, rain slickers, umbrellas. Nobody left because they were devoted to that. And I thought, wow, what if we had an open door service, open air service and started raining? What would happen? That's our culture. And God says, I want you to realize how important worship is to me and devote yourself. So let's read it. Verse 22. Jesus says in John 4:22, he's talking to the woman at the well. He took a little byway through uh, Sychar. And he says to that woman, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Now look up for just a second. I'll say that was the most culturally insensitive thing Jesus could have said. She's a Samaritan. Samaritans hated the Jews. The Jews hated the Samaritans. The Jews were purebred. The Samaritans were half-breeds. They were half-Jew, half-Gentile. And so they were looked down on as lesser by the Jews. And, and Jesus just pokes that sore right, I mean, pokes right into it. And he just flatly says the truth. He says, you know what? <laughs> what you're doing isn't right. What the Jews, salvation is of the Jews, they have the oracles of God, and you ought to, you ought to change and go their way which is very offensive and very confrontive, but that's how Jesus was. Now look at verse 23. But, see, he always gives hope. He's after this woman. He went to the well because he was after her, and, and he wanted to confront her with her sin and her error and her misdirected and misfocused worship and on the wrong everything. But now in verse 23, look what he says. But the hour is coming, and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. And he looks at her. And he waited. And you know what? The Lord was at work in her heart. You know the end of the story. But then look at, here's the, where we're going, verse 24. And I'm going to show you the three elements. It's every time worship's talked about, all three are there. Number one, God is spirit. That's who we worship. The, the God who is spirit, who is invisible, but he's represented, his exact representation is Jesus Christ. Number one, that's the one we worship. Number two, look at the verse, and those who worship him. That's the worshiper, the second element. The target, the giver is the worshiper. Now look at what it is we give. Those who worship him, and here's the worship God accepts, must worship in spirit. They have to be born again. They have to be possessors of the Holy Spirit. They have to be indwelt as a spirit, indwelt, born again, temple of God. So they have to be in spirit. But look, it doesn't end there. Look at verse 24. 
and truth. It has to be, Jesus said, I am the word of God. I am the way to God. I am the truth. And it's right here. God says, this is your way. I have told you how you can worship me. Wow. The essence of worship. Let's bow before the Lord in prayer. Father, this morning, in these few moments that we have before we go, I pray that you would imprint upon our hearts the truth of how you exactly want us to worship you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated for eight more minutes, okay? Here we go. Turn in your Bibles from John to Romans, because what we find is that the scriptures build upon themselves, and Paul is alluding to what Jesus said as he defines worship even more completely. And this is our introduction, Lord willing, for next week. Because Jesus explains in John 4 that true biblical worship is only offered by born-again people, those who are in the Spirit, who follow God's Word. They're in truth. But now look at Romans 12, 1 and 2. Here's what we find. True biblical worship in Romans 12 can only be offered not just by a believer, but the character and consecration of the believer totally impact whether they can offer acceptable worship. Do you understand? That's what Romans 12 is not merely for middle school kids at campfires on youth retreats. It's not just for, for you know, sometime, yeah, I did that. It's a lifestyle that assures us that whenever we worship God in song, in group at communion, in private, through our suffering, in our deeds, that our worship is accepted. So what does it say? Romans 12, 1 and 2. It says, true biblical worship can only be offered by a surrendered believer. You know, when I did the 12 by 12, you know, the little devotional class we had, and I summarized, you know, that's what you do. You summarize it and find the lessons and then apply it. That was the summary. I just read it to you. Biblical worship, true biblical worship can only be offered by surrendered believers. Now look at the words. Same three elements. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you. What is that? That's the worshiper. That's Paul describing who it is that worships. It's a brethren. It's a brother in Christ. It's a born-again person. It's someone that's experienced what verse 1 says, the mercies of God. But what else does it say? It says that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. He goes from the worshiper to the one getting the worship. And he said the only way the worshiper can give acceptable, notice what it says, what is that good and acceptable to God worship. You say, where's worship? Well, it's the reasonable service. That's the word latereo. That means the offering. The, you might have it. It's our, it's, our, it's our true offering of worship. But what's it saying? It's saying that if we have not surrendered ourselves like a sacrifice, what does it mean to surrender like a sacrifice? That's why reading the Old Testament is so interesting. Did you know that those people could bring anything they wanted to sacrifice the Lord, and they brought it up to the temple and the priest stopped them. Do you know who the priests were? They were the health inspectors. They were the animal inspectors. They were the house inspectors. They were, they were in charge of, of 
of telling people what God expected and telling them whether they matched that or not. And so the priest, you'd bring up your animal and the priest would take it and he would lift its ear and he'd look inside and he'd open its mouth and look at its teeth and its mouth and he would feel it all over to see if it had scabs, if it had sores, if it had any broken or missing or deformed parts. He looked if it was healthy, vibrant. One of those three-legged blind cows at the, at the auction would not have been accepted, would have been rejected. Now look back at this, what Paul's saying. I want you, because of your merciful God that, that has paid the ultimate price, the sacrifice of Christ for you to be saved, I want you to give back to him your body, your life. Make it a living sacrifice. Come and, and make sure that your life is holy and acceptable to him so you can offer reasonable, acceptable worship. Now what's the danger? It's in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. Now we're getting back to the body, the worshiper. God is offended when we allow the world that is at enmity against him to squeeze us so we begin looking like the world as we offer to God. He says, don't be squashed into the mold of the world. Rather, Allow my word to transform and renew your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can live out, so you can prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God, so that you can offer that good and acceptable and perfect offering to God. How do you do that? By not getting squashed to the world, allowing our mind to not be primarily pickled by the world. That's why we need to have regular fasts from media and television and all that stuff and, and kind of get purged. You know, you can tell if you're like this and you just don't have enough time to read the Bible and you just don't know where to start, you've got to hurry off to work, you know you need to purge. Because the world has made us not able to be still and come in reverence before God. We're being squashed away from him. So what the Lord says here is, that's what I want. Here's the last one. This is where we're going to, we have three minutes. Go to Philippians 3.3. Isn't that neat? Lots of threes. Philippians 3.3. 3, and this is where we're going to pick up next time. Because what Paul does is he takes John 4 and Romans 12 and compresses them into one little verse. And this is probably the most definitive epistolary verse about worship in the scriptures. In the epistles, the most definitive. It has all three pieces and it has them clearly spoken. And this is what he says. For we are the circumcision. We're the ones with the new heart. Circumcision is, is that God has taken away our old heart. It's Ezekiel 36. It's the whole idea of being born again. He's talking about circumcised hearts, not bodies. For we're the circumcision. We're the worshiper. We're the born again one. We worship God. He's the object. And notice what it says. We worship God. And here's what our, our, the type of worship God gets. We worship him in the spirit we worship him rejoicing in Christ Jesus, and we worship him having no confidence in the flesh. God wants us saved, that's circumcised. He wants us in the spirit. He wants us humbly surrendered, that's what rejoicing in Christ Jesus is. And he wants us consecrated, having no confidence in our flesh. Now here's the last thing to think about. Flesh denial is critical to worship. Anything that leads to pride, to self-exaltation, must be avoided. Just like Nadab and Abihu that I mentioned were smitten 
in, in Leviticus 10 for their misguided offering. So we must never allow flesh to guide our worship. You know, I have a friend, and uh, he's in the Christian worship industry. And I said, hey, how you doing? You know, have, have any of your songs made it big or anything yet? And he said, I'm really rethinking all this. He said, I moved to the epicenter of Christian worship music. And I, I'm immersed in it. And you know what he said I'm finding? He said, the people that are the most well-known Christian entertainers in the world are not Philippians 3.3. 3. Their lives do not rejoice in Christ, and they certainly do not deny their flesh. And he said, it's making me back away from the industry. Because, he says, how can they be offering worship when they're not having clean hands and pure hearts, when sometimes their lives are worse than the people they're reaching out to in their crusades? Now, God doesn't want us to be perfect, but he wants us to confess and forsake our sin. Even if we have to do it all day long, he wants us doing it. So what is a true worshiper? They worship God in the spirit with a circumcised heart. They rejoice in Christ Jesus, realizing that it is all about a substitute who made this all possible, but we have no confidence in the flesh. Beware of fleshly worship. God wants humility. Well, to close, let's stand. And as we stand, uh, we're going to close with a song as our prayer. And just to remind you of how earnestly God wants our worship, God picked one of the worst sinners of all, a guy out of the gutter, who did stuff that's too horrible to even say in public, to write one of the most beautiful songs to remind us about worship. And what he said is, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a what? Wretch. You see, we have no confidence in our flesh. We know it's traitorous. And we rejoice in Christ Jesus. So let's close by singing that, and then I'll close in prayer after we sing that. And after that, the elders and Titus two women will be here if you want to pray with someone. And uh, I just pray that this will be a renewing of all of our lives to a lifestyle of worship that's acceptable to God. Let's sing to him. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. And Father, we want to see you. We want to see you in your word. We want to see you in truth. We want to worship you in the spirit and in truth. And we want to have no confidence in our flesh. May we humbly approach you, robed in Christ, obedient to his word, so we offer acceptable worship. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. God bless you as you go.